to the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. My name is Nick Sinais. I'm an adjunct lecturer in public policy here at the Kennedy School, um, and it's uh, great to be here. Uh, we have a really fantastic uh, panel, and so uh, we got a really great uh, crew here today. Um, and I will uh, start by giving you just a, a flavor of the background, but I won't read the whole whole thing. Uh, so, Brent Colbert uh, at the end is a, currently a fellow at the Institute of Politics. Uh, he was the uh, assistant to the Secretary of Defense for Public Affairs. He was the chief of staff of HUD. For those who know anything about the federal government, that means he basically ran the entire department. Uh, and then was also uh, assistant secretary at uh, DHS. Um, closest to me is Kimber Dowsett. Uh, so Kimber is a security architect at the developer operations team at 18F. 18F is a new digital services unit at the, the GSA, or the General Services Agency. It's a 150-person strong, badass uh, group, and Kimber will tell us a little bit about that in a sec. Uh, Jen Ellis, in the middle there, is Vice President of Community and Public Affairs at Rapid7. Uh, Rapid7 is a security <coughs> analytics and IT firm, uh, public company, uh, $800 million market cap, I think a third of the Fortune uh, 1000 as customers, really uh, exciting company. And then we have Ari Schwartz. Ari Schwartz is former uh, special assistant to the president, uh, senior director at the National Security Council in the White House. Before that was at Commerce uh, as a internet advisor and then uh, was at the Center for Technology, Democracy and Technology. Democracy comes first. Democracy comes first. <laughs> He's an underachiever, really. Yes. Uh, so a really fantastic uh, uh, panel, uh, but we won't do all the talking here. Uh, there's really bright, uh, interesting minds in the room. So what we'll do is we'll talk a little bit, but then we'll have some Q&A. You guys can ask them their tough questions. Uh, no one is officially in the administration anymore, uh, so you can really challenge them, and they can give their candid thoughts, hopefully. Uh, I'll just read you a few of the headlines this week, if anyone has any doubt about why this is interesting. Teen who hacked CIA director's email tells how he did it. Cybersecurity bill advances in Senate, but hurdles remain. Apple and Dropbox say they don't support a key cybersecurity bill days before a crucial vote. The Senate's cybersecurity bill could make it easier for the NSA to spy on you. Sony hack lawsuit settlement could cost company up to $8 million. Cybersecurity firm says Chinese hackers keep attacking US companies. And that was just a kind of a random grab of a few headlines this week. Uh, so it should be pretty clear to everyone just, just how top of mind uh, this, this topic is. This isn't new, of course. This, there's, uh, uh, this has been going on for decades. But I think uh, it really is uh, top of mind both in government but also in, in the corporate world, too. I think uh, it matters for CEOs and boards as well as for the senior executives in, in government. So uh, I thought we'd, we'd start a little bit just with some of the, the basics. Um, well, let me just actually take a poll here. Who's Harvard Kennedy School? Okay. Who is Harvard College, Harvard Business School, C's, 
other Harvard School, law school, uh, tech community, people just crashing from the tech community. <laughs> other, Boston, <laughs> other Boston community folks. Okay. Anyone else I left out in the description? Okay. Um, all right. So I actually just want to start with the real basics, and that is, you know, what is cybersecurity? What is info security? What is cyber conflict? I mean, we throw these terms around, uh, but maybe it's just some basic definitions. I, I don't know uh, if Ari or Brent, if you want to kind of just tackle. Yeah, the, the I'm, I'm more than happy to start out by, um, in no definitive way, answering your question. Um, <laughs> so, you know, look, I, I was uh, the head of public affairs at both Homeland Security uh, and at DOD, uh, which means my main um, credential in this area is that I got to be in a lot of meetings with a lot of really smart people who talked about these problems. And the thing that always struck me was we do use the term cybersecurity as this catch-all term for a lot of different things that are going on in and around our government, just speaking in the government space for a minute. So what I thought would be helpful is I'm just going to give you a quick list, big picture, kind of big buckets of what we would worry about waking up in the morning uh, from uh, a DHS or DOD perspective. So, you know, we use the term cybersecurity to talk about a bunch of different stuff, right? We use it to talk about traditional espionage. So you saw this with the OPM hack this, uh, this last year. That was something we would have tried to do, or the Chinese or whoever might have done it, uh, would have tried to do before computers even existed, going after records that pertain to high-level government officials to be able to exploit those for espionage reasons, right? Uh, we worry about commercial espionage, huge problem with the Chinese, right? This is a kind of public and private sector problem. This is, you know, other nation states going after our commercial secrets, right? So that's an issue we put in the bucket. Uh, we worry about terrorism, right? We see a lot of issues that if it was done not in the cyber uh, domain would just be uh, considered terrorism. Think of um, ISIL's takeover of the Central Command Twitter feed. Uh, uh, this last summer, that was just to wreak havoc and send a signal. There was no operational uh, impact to that in terms of our ability to fight against ISIL. We think about traditional warfare, right? Uh, we do a lot of thinking about this, so it doesn't get a lot of attention. You know, how are we going to defend against other nation states using, uh, you know, technology to inflict the type of damage on us they used to be able to do? using bombs and other traditional uh, tools of warfare, bringing down power grids, impacting our ability to do command and control amongst our own military forces and with partners. Um, and then, you know, finally, uh, we think about, you know, just pranks, right? Things that are disruptive but don't really have a major impact uh, or aren't done for a reason to have a major impact beyond potentially embarrassing the United States government or forwarding an agenda, usually a transparency agenda, which is a good thing when you have things like someone who decides it's okay to hack the private email account of the head of the CIA, that person didn't do it for a warfare reason. I don't think they did it for a terrorism reason. They didn't do it for a commercial espionage reason. They really did it just to kind of make a point. So all of those things get put into the cyber bucket. And if you think about how different those problems are, the only commonality really is that it's happening in this domain. And I think uh, it, caused, it poses a huge challenge to the government on how we're going to set up our systems to deal with this breadth of problems that have kind of one uh, common characteristic but a lot of uncommon characteristics. So I don't know if that's helpful. Mm. But. So let me take it, um, your question more, uh, the, the, the semantics of your question directly, which is 
why do we use the term cyber inside the why do we use the term cyber inside the US government rather than information security rather than internet security the way that industry talks about this stuff or used to talk about this and now now a lot of industries sort of move toward using cyber I also call this kind of how I became uh, how I stopped hating the term cyber and became ambivalent about it <laughs> um, so uh, the about 12 years ago, and this is my own interpretation based on people that I've spoken to, but about 12 years ago, um, in the Department of Defense, um, there was a concern that the amount of spending that they were doing on uh, information security, as it was called, time or computer security, um, was rising really rapidly within each of the each of the branches of the military, and um, they, in order to get more budget to do this. They had to move outside of the structure of the, the domains that they had, air, sea, land, space, right? So creating a new domain, cyber, right, allowed them to push budget toward a new area um, that then they could use in this. And so they took, they took over the science fiction term cyber for that reason. Uh, obviously, that made the defense contractors start calling things cybersecurity. That, that made... Um, the uh, folks at sell to defense contractors start using the term cybersecurity. But you also, uh, and, you, and you also have this legacy of uh, military guys using cyber as a noun, which no one else ever does. Um, so, but the, so that's sort of the, the, you know, one area of it. But then, then there's also a, a kind of a second reason that we use it, which is, uh, hasn't been written about as much, but I think is really interesting, which is in the international context, the term that most people were using um, around eight years ago, seven years ago, was information security in this space, which is also the same term that the Russians and the Chinese use to talk about securing information inside their borders. In other words, censorship, right? So in the international discussions, the term information security, you'd be we, the, um, we'd be talking about information, have these uh, diplomatic discussions about information security. Some people would be meaning uh, securing systems, exactly what Brent was talking about. Some people would mean censorship. Um, and you couldn't, you, you'd end up w with these kind of, this cognitive dissidence on the discussion. We learned if we use the term cybersecurity, they couldn't really use it to mean uh, censorship in that way. So uh, the diplomats started using the term cybersecurity uh, similar to, in a similar way to talk about exactly the things we needed to protect and protecting the systems, et cetera. And then you could still talk about privacy and rights along with that without having this kind of dissonance t t uh, tied to it. So um, that's a, the more positive side of, of, of why uh, the term becomes really useful uh, in this context. We've seen a number of, uh, or at least in the media, we've seen a number of, of breaches and attacks with the Office of Personnel Management. Um, for example, uh, the, the 20 million records that essentially were were taken there. Uh, it's been publicly reported about uh, uh, things in White House and State Department and other agencies as well, the, the, the Cyber Command Twitter Twitter handle. Is this becoming more prevalent in, in government, or is it just the, the, the media is picking up on these attacks uh, more? Do you have any perspective on that? Uh, look, I think that um, you know our adversaries are becoming much more active in this domain. And it is interesting. I think it's very interesting to talk about this. And I think it's the right thing to talk about as a domain. And some of you may have heard me tell this story before, but there was this great uh, Ash Carter, as defense secretary, was giving a troop talk, which are basically these town hall meetings that he gives when he travels to any secretary of defense game. And he was asked by a, a young airman, um, you know, can you imagine a world where 
uh, we would have a fifth branch of the military that just did cyber, right? It wasn't always an Air Force. It was, it, it actually trailed the use of the airplane in, um, in warfare by about 50 years before we actually created a separate branch. And it does beg a lot of questions about how we organize around this problem. Um, but look, our adversaries, state and non-state, are getting more active in this area. I mean, you just, you see it every single day. And I think what's interesting was talking with uh, a Kennedy School student right before this, you see it in local government, you know, they're, they're not just looking at the federal government, they're looking at businesses, they're looking at, uh, uh, in, in some cases, private citizens, they're uh, going after state, they don't see the same distinctions we see between state, local, uh, and federal government. So, you know, I think it is uh, inarguable that it's on the upswing. Can I sort of Please. speak to that a little bit? Um, so I think that there are a number of factors in why that is. Um, so I think if you look at uh, cybercrime as an economy, regardless of whether it's motivated by economic reasons or otherwise, um, you consider things like incentives, opportunities, barriers to entry, that kind of stuff. So. Um, the incentives are increasing. There's like really, really strong black markets. There are governments willing to pay, that kind of thing. Um, and there's cryptocurrencies that make it easier to, to monetize. So there's really strong incentives to, to move into the space. Um, there's a lot of opportunity because every single one of us represents an opportunity. We're all, we're all online. We're all putting information out all the time. And for any organization that we're part of, um, like, you know, you guys being part of Harvard, each and every one of you is a point on their perimeter, effectively. Like, you are a potential entry point to that organization. So, for attackers, there's, like, just a huge amount of opportunity. And the opportunity is not going to diminish. Um, so, then, when you look at, like, uh, so, so there's lots and lots of opportunity uh, to, to trick you guys is relatively simple. No offense. <laughs> um, if you look at like um, people are familiar with phishing as an idea great Would you ex um, explain what phishing is for those who, who uh, so phishing is basically when you um, try to you communicate with somebody typically via email and um, you try to get them to take an action um, and normally that action is to either uh, download something malicious or to provide credentials to you. So you might send them an email that looks like it comes from Ari saying um, you know, that he needs you to uh, log in to Dropbox to like, look at this document that you guys are working on together and the idea being that like, then when you go to log in you're gonna, put your, that you're, you're gonna click on the link They'll have spoofed a page that looks like a, the page should, and then you're going to put in your credentials, and then they'll capture your credentials. Once they do that, they have a foot in the door. And once they can get a foot into the door of your organization, then tricking other people into taking certain action to keep letting them move through the network is actually relatively easy, because from an attacker point of view, people's behavior is incredibly easy to manipulate and is incredibly predictable. So for example, if I take over your laptop and I, um, I start making the mouse go crazy, so the cursor is like flying around the screen, you're probably going to call IT. And the IT guy is gonna tell you to switch it on and off again. Um, <laughs> but then if that doesn't work, he's probably going to, and I'm sorry, I'm being super gender biased, they are probably going to, um, <laughs> Uh, they're probably going to do a remote uh, login to your machine. So if I'm the attacker and I'm sitting there watching everything going on in your machine and I've got a keylogger on your machine, I just got admin credentials for the IT guy. So now I can like up level my access. 
So it's for attackers, there's lots of opportunity because we're all opportunity and the barriers to entry are like significantly lowering because suddenly I don't need to be really, really technically skilled. I need to be able to trick people, which is relatively easy. And if I do want to do something that's very like technically sophisticated, I can go and buy hacker for hire skills or I can buy an exploit kit on the black market. Like these things are widely available. So you've got good incentives got lots of opportunity and opportunity increasing as we increase the tax surface. What I mean by that is we connect more and more things to the internet every day. Apparently these days your fridge needs to be connected to the internet, your barbecue needs to be connected to the internet. So your attack surface is like vastly increasing. So the opportunity for me as an attacker is increasing. I've got to stop saying that I'm a bad, a bad guy. Um, so strong incentives, lots of opportunity, no barriers to entry. And then on top of that, you have countries where there's high unemployment um, and then there's like a really wide access to, credit, uh, to um, technical infrastructure. And there's a government that's either motivated to turn a blind eye um, or just simply doesn't have the scope to really tackle the problem. So you've got like huge populations where they're like highly motivated to get involved in this uh, market and so a big part of the reason that you see it increasing is because the the economy for it is just massively increasing. I, I'll say, I mean, I agree with everything you said. Um, I, I don't think it's exponentially increasing at this right. point. I think we've kind of passed that point, and now it's like arithmetically increasing. But it seems like it's exponentially increasing because the tools have defined that illicit behavior have gotten much better thanks to folks like you, um, <laughs> but uh, which is great. I mean, that means that we can solve, that the problem is solvable, and it, I mean, this is the optimistic viewpoint, right, that uh, it's if we do get to see more and we can actually stop it quicker, stop it in advance before it even happens, um, we're, that we can solve the problem. So, um, well, not solve it, but we can uh, manage the risk around it um, in a better way than we yeah. have been. And so, but first we have to see the problem, which we haven't been seeing, so. And, and just like on your original point, it's also the other factors. It's also the fact that um, publications now know that it sells headlines. So most publications now have a dedicated security writer. Um, there's also been in the past sort of 10 years a massive increase in the expectation and requirement on organizations to notify if they have a compromise of some kind. So now you have 47 states that have breach notification law of some kind. So you have to notify if you get breached. And if you do notify, the press are going to want to pick up the story. So it is also the fact that the, the noise level has increased. Yep. Yeah. And then I would just two things on one on kind of the barriers to entry, I think. And again, talking purely about state actors in this case. Uh, I think a number of uh, state actors have also realized that it is a very economical way to project power beyond their borders, right? So, you know, we talk a lot in the military context, the United States military is very unique in its ability to project power because we have things like aircraft carriers and a mobility system that others don't have. Uh, it's a lot cheaper to pay a lot of very young members of your military to go out and do cyber than it is to build an aircraft carrier. It has a lot more immediate impact. So I think there's a budgeting choice that's, that's taking place within other countries about putting resources against this problem. And I think you're starting to see that play out. And then for the policy folks in the room, I think it's also, it's been a very interesting journey for the United States government from a policy perspective to decide how public they will be about some of these things. I mean, the fact that this was a topic of conversation that was publicly covered during President Xi's visit 
just a few weeks ago. That's a that's a seed change, that, especially on the commercial espionage side of the federal government starting to call people out for doing this, using that as a tool of diplomacy. And so I think, in a way, we're bringing we're bringing more attention to it for very good reasons as well. So. Yeah, and you're seeing, I mean, you're seeing CEOs losing their jobs. Uh, I mean, so it really is an issue in corporate America as well. Uh, the other news story that I didn't have in my clippings here, but I realized uh, touches me personally because I have a Jeep Cherokee that same year uh, that got hacked. So I don't know if you guys saw that, but you basically can take over, uh, I think it's a 2010 Jeep Cherokee, uh, and uh, actually take over steering and, and so forth. Uh, Kimber, you're on the front lines of uh, cybersecurity, uh, working in this, this, this new fun unit uh, at the cutting edge of digital services for the, for the American people. I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about 18F, but then also a little bit about what it means uh, to actually practice this. Um, sure. Uh, so I'll start with 18F. Um, 18F is a, uh, I want to, I guess division would be a, a good way to put it, of GSA, General Services Administration. So um, if you're not familiar with GSA, uh, basically every government agency is a customer of GSA. You know, we procure things like buildings or tech or systems or, you know, it's it's sort of the one-stop shop for the, for the government. So you could say that other agencies are a customer of GSA. So <clears throat> um, following the uh, launch of health the healthcare.gov site, um, and then I don't, I don't want to say um, the initial failure of that site will will we say the challenges. The, the challenges <laughs> of that. Um, so, so you may have read that a few um, hackers sort of chopped away at that code and in three or four days got the site up and running and working. Um, <clears throat> so those folks uh, were able to get money from 18F to kind of start their own branch of government. So 18F uh, came out of that um, challenge and now we're about 100 and, uh, 140 people strong or so. Um, <clears throat> the mission of 18F is just, it's to provide digital delivery services in a way that you haven't seen before in the federal government. We're using an agile environment. We're kind of cutting through some of the red tape. We stood our entire infrastructure up on the cloud. It's not scary though, ooh. Um, <laughs> AWS. Uh, so. And our model is one of full transparency. Can you tell people what AWS is. <clears throat> oh, Amazon Web Services. So if you're not if you're not familiar, you've heard of the cloud. It's not really a cloud, right? It's just a big giant data center with a whole lot of really expensive servers that we could never afford on our budget. Um, so uh, it's it's basically, you know, a data center as a service, really. So instead of going out and procuring with the American dollars. Um, you know, $50 million for a data center, we just are using Amazon Web Services that are pretty much, I, I mean, the cost is, is minimal, 15% of what we would have spent to build our, build our own data center. So um, when you think about things like assets, if you've, if you've worked anywhere that, that uses the term assets, you probably think of it as your computer with a, with a tag on it or, you know, your monitor has a sticker on it. I'm sure they have those all over Harvard so that they can track them. So in our world, assets aren't physical things, right? They're not these tangible things. It's, it's, the, it's the information, the data, the, the thing that you're trying to preserve, right? I don't care if my computer breaks, right? I want to know if 
the information that that computer had access to was accessed in some way. So <clears throat> for the 18F model, we have our infrastructure all standing on AWS. Um, and I don't want to get too technical, right, but we sort of then through um, our infrastructure layer in Cloud Foundry, um, you guys can, can check that out. It's a really cool service. Uh, we're deploying all of our code in GitHub. So uh, you may have heard the term open source software. So uh, it's when developers uh, go out there and write snippets of code, but they make it available for everybody to see, right? It, open source doesn't mean free. It just means that it's, it's transparent. So let's say I write a really cool application and I put it on GitHub, right? You could say, oh, that's really cool. I could use that for my organization if it did this instead. Well, great, you can go and do a pull request and fork my code and then tweak it to meet your needs and, and there you have it. So um, the way that that's kind of improving security within the federal government and trying to reestablish some of the trust that we have lost um, Frankly, we've lost some of the trust of the American people, right, with things like the OPM breach, um, <clears throat> is provide this layer of transparency. So if you wanna know what's happening with your data, um, what we're doing with your data, will you just get your people to pull our code and you can look at it and, and we've got it right out there for you to see how we're parsing that data and what we're doing with it. So um, that I sort of digress to the, um, to the area of reestablishing trust and we all know uh, I, for one, you know, got that <clears throat> heart-wrenching email that, you know, 150 pages of my personal information was compromised along with all my family members and everybody I've ever known. Like, I feel the pain of it. Uh, there's not a lot that we can do about it. Um, things like the Sony breach, we've, we've got years, if not decades, to try to earn that trust back. Um, but I think the, the key is to start with transparency. So that's the 18F mission is to not have government be this big mysterious thing that what are you doing with my data? What are you doing with my files? We say here, look at it, look at the code and, and see what you think. And by all means, if you wanna fork it and tell us a better way to do it, um, we, we might not accept your changes that you propose, but we'll certainly take a look. So it's opening the dialogue between just the everyday developer and programmers working for the federal government. So I And just to be clear, Kimber, you're you're making code available so people can, can see what you're doing, but you're not actually making people's personal data available to the world. Absolutely so not. Right, make that right. Distinction for right. Those. Can, can yeah, I just, one quick thing, and, and I think this is important, and, and Kimber touched on this. You know, I would say that from being inside a couple agencies, the biggest single barrier we had to addressing this problem was our ability to hire people with a skill set in an efficient way uh, to meet the needs that we saw arising, right? The federal government has a hiring system that has a lot of advantages and disadvantages. An advantage is not that it's particularly um, uh, uh, agile. It's also not one, uh, it is one that is very much seniority driven, uh, and that is not always what gets at people with these skill sets. So one, I think that's just important for folks to know. It's, it's something I know the White House is working very hard on, folks inside DOD are working very hard on, GSA is working very hard on. But I think it's illustrative of a bigger uh, fact that you don't have to be a technical person to help solve the problems of policy that are around this issue set. A lot of them are very untechnical problems. They're hiring, they're command and control, they're how do we actually get a very disparate federal government to work together around these problems. So um, procurement. procurement is a huge piece of it. How do, you, how do you break the procurement and budgeting cycle to keep up with the technologies that are constantly changing? So, you know, please, I, I would, it, this is more just to encourage folks. We need lots of 
really smart people with lots of really disparate skill sets, not just technical skills, to help us kind of crack yeah. uh, crack the nut on this thing. So. It's definitely a, a big tent, and there's there's room for folks with all kinds of skill sets and, and backgrounds. And I think that just speaks to the panel here. I mean, yeah. in terms of you guys all have very different backgrounds and experiences and skill sets, and yet you're all important actors in, in, in helping us manage and solve solve the problem here. I wanted to move to some policy conversations because. There's uh, some interesting ones uh, happening. Uh, right now, we have the Cybersecurity and Information Sharing Act, which has passed the House and looks like it's making good progress in the Senate. Uh, and Ari, since your job was essentially to develop uh, administration policy for something like that, I wonder if you could give us a little bit of context about what it is, uh, what it's trying to do, uh, where the critics have it wrong or right. Uh, sure. So, um, I, th just to clarify what you said, so the, this is, this bill is a Senate bill. The CISA is a Senate bill. It's the acronym that we're going to use for it. Um, the, on the House side, there are two other bills yeah. that are pretty different. I mean, they're sim they have the same goals, but but they're, it's not like just because the Senate bill passes, this thing's going forward. There still needs to be a uh, conference committee um, after the, after it passes the House and. I mean, after passes the Senate, and, and there will be uh, continued uh, news and controversy over that that uh, conference committee. So, still has a, several more steps to go to before it, it actually goes through. Um, so, the, the the bill you can trace this back about ten years, but uh, I'll go back about five years just to make it a little uh, to condense this a little bit, since we only have limited time on the panel. The the bill um, w we put together a. Um, administration package on cybersecurity that had seven pieces to it. Um, one of those pieces was cybersecurity standards, which was kind of the biggest piece, and, and basically said that DHS would put together uh, cybersecurity standards for the critical infrastructure and that they would oversee that. Um, there was big pushback from industry on that side, on that, on that issue, uh, and it ended up uh, going, when it went to the Senate, they turned that into a voluntary set of standards that DHS would put together for the entire industry. Um, if, when our view on that was, well, if you're going to do it as, and then it didn't pass. Um, and then, so uh, our view was, if you're going to do it as voluntary standards, we can do that ourselves. And we did an executive order that created the cybersecurity framework that the National Institute of Standards and Technology put together. That's been a great success. I mean, industry has been really taking that up as the risk management document to uh, help translate between different sets of standards across different sectors. Um, uh, Ajay Banga from um, MasterCard called it the Rosetta Stone for cybersecurity, which I think that was exactly the purpose of it, was to be able to do that kind of translation for risk management. So that's been really, really successful, but that has focused a lot of the attention in this discussion on the information sharing pieces of this, uh, uh, because that's really what Congress has to do left, and what industry really said, we're not for this, these, in, these standards, we are for information sharing. Uh, and that's a what, what the information sharing piece is, is an uh, effort to provide industry a voluntary ability to share information among themselves and with government um, and get liability protections. The places where they have the most liability um, ha are really around privacy law. That if they start sharing information that has privacy sensitive, if they start sharing privacy sensitive information in there, you get some kind of liability protection to make sure that you're not going to be held liable for sharing that in this context of some kind of cybersecurity threat. Um, when, so we had a we put together our provision for this, um, and and had uh, gave most of the guidance, made, made it very clear what kind of privacy rules need to be put in place on top of 
um, some new regime that gave this kind of liability protection, um, and that the Department of Justice would write that kind of guidance. Um, when the House took it up at that time, uh, in 2011, they, re they did their own version um, that was called CISPA at the time, um, it, and that had in it uh, three things that the White House uh, was really concerned about and actually issued a veto threat around. Um, the, those three things were, um, number one, that you could share information directly with the NSA and with, uh, with the intelligence community, and this was before the Snowden uh, revelations. What, and what we said at the time was, there's just not enough oversight over the intelligence community to share information directly with them and know that that personal information is going to be removed and that it's going to be shared the right way. Um, and, and you can't get that kind of public oversight that you need to give the people, people the confidence that you would need to be able to do that. Number two, um, that uh, the uh, that there were not there, there was no rules for minimization, so that they didn't have to minimize the, the company sharing the information wouldn't have to minimize the data and make sure that that it was only the information necessary for cybersecurity purposes, and that the government didn't have to minimize the information as it came in if they saw stuff that that was beyond the scope. Um, and it was important to the White House that, that that information was minimized in order to protect privacy. And number three was the liability protections that in, in that first original bill, those liability protections were extremely broad uh, to the point where if you were sharing information, then you were basically protected for negligence um, for sharing the information for, for, for what happened on your network. So you could share information about stuff and then if you got attacked, you, you'd ha you would have no responsibility uh, for protecting the networks. Uh, I'm speaking in somewhat broad terms, and that changed over time, but uh, that was the, the basic concern. So uh, we laid out those three concerns. Um, the House, uh, those, those bills, the bill passed the House uh, that way. It did not pass the Senate um, in, the, in that last Congress. In this Congress, the bills, have, they made major changes in the House to that bill to address those three issues. Um, uh, the White House still felt as though they did not go far enough on liability protection uh, in the House versions, but th th there was a feeling that um, if we that if it got to committee because the Senate bill was good on liability protections, we could get to that we could come to some kind of agreement. So the White House supported that bill. In the Senate version, it's sort of the opposite. The liability protections are good, but some of the privacy protections are still not strong enough in the, in the, in the uh, in that bill. They've gotten better in all three areas, but not to the point of uh, saying it, where you can say um, they're as strong as what the House has. So uh, there's, there's provisions where it's not clear if you can share with other agencies beyond the Department of Homeland Security who has the, the uh, requirement to minimize the data, right? And how much information they have to minimize is still up for debate. So there, there's, critics are saying, you know, this is a backdoor surveillance bill because it doesn't have those protections in it, um, which, again, the House version does. But um, so, so the, there's this question of when they get married together, Will it be something that uh, kind of balances those two out? Or, you know, do you think of, the, think of how, how to get to the right kind of solution in this space? Or are we just against the, the concepts of these bills altogether, you know, voluntary information sharing, uh, especially considering how much value they're going to bring in the long term? I think everyone um, in industry, there are folks in industry that say it's going to bring a lot of value. Most folks in industry say it'll bring some value. Um, and then there are some people that say it actually brings absolutely no value. So um, the, the, the kind of balance between the privacy concerns and how much value it brings really and, and where you are on that scale uh, 
sets your view on how important it is for this thing to pass. Can I can I take a step up Pl and just to please. explain that? So um, just to like kind of provide a bit more of the context, when you're talking about cyber information sharing, what you're talking about is um, organizations sharing what we call cyber threat information. Um, and it's a pretty uh, wide list of things. But generally speaking, it is information around um, attacks that are being seen in the wild. Um, so it could be the way that an attack is perpetrated, who is doing it, um, uh, what systems they're attacking, um, it, and uh, frequently this information comes from organizations who are the subject of the attack or from law enforcement who are investigating the attack. And so uh, the reason that this issue sort of comes up is that when you when you take the information so that you can analyze it and and like understand what trends are emerging and what new attack techniques are emerging and you you share that information with other organizations so that you can evolve your defenses in response to this to to protect against these attacks um, sometimes when you take that information, there may be personally identifiable information in the packets. And sometimes it's quite hard to strip that information out. Um, so, for example, phishing attack, which you mentioned earlier, right. right, has people's email addresses as part of it. It has IP addresses, right? It has some things that are tied to it. Now, they're not extremely sensitive pieces of information, right. but they still are personal information. And so you can't say you're going to get rid of all personal information in the sharing. And from a threat intelligence standpoint, there really is no better way to kind of predict your next attack than to see what's happening to your competitors or your right. peers in the right. and, and, and also the, the goal here, the long-term goal yeah. is to um, have to move to automated sharing so that the information goes straight out to the ends of the network and then you build up protections I mean, almost real time rather than waiting a few days or months or et cetera. So, so, the, and I'm sorry, yeah, no, no, no. So, so the background is um, that there are, uh, when you think about cybersecurity, there is a, a, an enormous spectrum in terms of the maturity of organizations to, to deal with cybersecurity issues. So you have, um, at one end, you have organizations like the financial institutions who are way ahead of everybody else. Um, and that's you know largely because security is something that financial institutions have invested in both physically and virtually for a very very long time. But it's also because one of the things that um, financial institutions do as part of their business is they have for a long time taken approach of harvesting the information they have across the organisation and analysing it to see what trends emerge and what they can do and how they can build their business based on it. So taking that sort of um, strategy and applying it to security was a sort of relatively natural. I'm sure very painful but relatively natural evolution process for them. So you have like very large financial institutions who are really kind of leading the way on this stuff. And, um, and then there are other uh, areas like uh, you're starting to see like very, very large retailers in the sort of wake of Target and Home Depot who are also starting to do this. Um, there are organizations in the critical infrastructure space that do this. So that it's it's very much a case that it's not everybody who's who's able to do this. Um, going going back to the point that you made earlier, one of the biggest challenges that cybersecurity faces across the board, not just in the government, is the skills shortage. So for most organisations, they they don't actually have the resources to really effectively be able to do information sharing. Um, but 
one of the ways in which um, creating a better framework for this or even automating it can help is that it can enable the activities of that sort of 5% of organizations that are able to participate um, to uh, raise the tide for the, the, the broader base of organizations by like taking the information that's being analyzed over here and the learnings that are coming out of it and then spreading it out across other organizations that are not necessarily able to participate in such an active way. So a lot of the goal behind um, having legislation around this has been to create better frameworks for participation, um, both in terms of what does it look like for an organization that wants to participate, um, what does it look like for the government to participate, and, and like one of the things that I hear about from people who do lobby for this is that um, one of the things they're particularly keen to do is get the information that the government has out into the private sector. Because the government, through either law enforcement or national defense, has a huge amount of information on, on attack threats and, um, and trends. And that information is frequently treated either as, as classified and doesn't get shared, or gets shared on a very limited basis, or if it's not treated as classified, then getting access to the information can be a little bit sort of opportunistic based on whether you happen to have a relationship with law enforcement or, um, and it can be quite quite slow to come out. So it's improving massively, um, but one of the- and we've, and we've done executive orders around that specific issue to try and get information out, to try and say that the default is not is is not to have it as be not to have this information be classified, right? The default is have it is is unclassified before it even starts on the path, so you don't have to declassify it later, which takes right. even longer. Um, we we also have an executive order that was signed in February that um, signed that. Uh, created these stand, this, a standards body, that DHS is supporting a standards body for information sharing to, to get the regularity for companies to share with each other and for government to participate into that, um, which people seem to be, the, the, the people in the information sharing space are very excited about. There are other people that don't quite understand <laughs> yeah. this, but. So, um, it, it, so. Looks, it looks like we're headed towards an information yeah. security yeah, sorry. <laughs> framework. So uh, two, two things that I think are important. Uh, one, and I'll be a bit of the boogeyman uh, for all the liberals in the room, and I, I am very much a liberal. Um, but uh, I do think we lose sight sometimes when we talk about uh, these practices and what we need to be doing as a country to protect ourselves. It's very easy to get pulled down the privacy rabbit hole because when we think about collectively cyber attacks, we do think about targeting credit cards. We do think about um, you know even just personally identifiable information being shared through an OPM attack. Uh, and luckily, we haven't seen this on a large scale yet. But it's important to remember that a lot of what we're talking about here potentially is critical infrastructure protection, which you which you mentioned. And uh, I, folks may know what control systems are and how all that works, but you know you know it's not science fiction that there is. What happened with the Jeep Cherokee could happen with the LA power grid, right? So we are really talking about um, our ability to uh, see attacks coming and respond to them in real time uh, in ways that really could impact uh, the country in some pretty pretty critical ways. So, Brett, could you define critical infrastructure? Give some examples. Yeah, of what are well, I mean dams, um, power grids, um, satellites. Um, there's what 12 categories. 16. Of 16 critical infrastructure. 17, categories. right? There's yeah. a bit. Depends so, whether you count, you count it. Um, Finance, right? So these are things that could, you know, uh, in a non-physical world, have impacts, uh, you know, on scale with some physical terrorist attacks that we've seen over the last 20 years, right? So, um, so again, it's not important. It's important that as we think about the balance between um, 
privacy and security, that it's not just, we're not just thinking about the security of personally identifiable information, we really are talking about the security of the country and security of things that impact our daily lives uh, every single day. So I think that's one. And then two, a thing that, that you touched on, um, you know, part of what makes this so hard is in the physical space, there are gray areas, but in general, we have a pretty good definitional sense uh, and practical sense of what is public sector, what is private sector, what is defense, what is law enforcement, and what is the responsibility of an individual or a private entity. That all goes out the window when we're talking about cyberspace, right? Something can look like law enforcement, but is the uh, but is not covered by law enforcement, it actually falls into a defense space, or uh, it is something that in the physical world we would leave up to government regulation, but it's done by private entities. So this, this things move very quickly right. but, uh, let me, uh, and it uh, makes it harder to build the tools we need to defend. Let me, let me give you the, the devil's advocate side of that, and yeah, I'm sure. going to respond to myself as well. So, <laughs> um, which is, so if it's only critical infrastructure, then why not only have this apply to critical infrastructure? Why does it apply to everyone, number one? Number two, companies are sharing today, and they can share, and they can share the right information. Why do we need this, these liability protections to get them to share more, right? And, and uh, number, th number three is um, there are some companies out there that seem to be pushing in this space uh, for legislation in this space because it's something they can be for. Right, gives them liability protection, completely voluntary, no regulation tied to it. Then they don't have to worry about uh, legislation coming on the other side. So I think that, that those are the the big complaints that I hear from the, that side. Now on the other side of it, um, I'll say uh, um, to respond to myself because uh, I've obviously debated this a lot in my head, being a coming from a space being a private yes, yeah, and then moving to the National Security Council. They um, th that those. There are a number of companies that actually do have real problems in being able to share, and they are not participating in the way that they could, particularly the telecom space. Um, they have some barriers to be able to do this. And number two, we are moving as we move into more automated information sharing, we are going to move into finite fields that can be shared, right? We're not talking about dumping a whole computer or a whole set of logs. You're talking about picking out specific fields, maybe down to 200 if you have the way, the way that DHS said, that have specific things in them that are used for specific purposes. And if we can do that, and the information flows in that way, there's a lot less privacy concern about this information, even though there is some personal information that are in those fields. Yeah, and, and to be clear, I didn't want to leave the impression that yeah. this is just about critical infrastructure. I think it's more that that gets lost. Yeah, it does, that's, which is the biggest dominant. So if, if I could summarize, it looks like <laughs> we have legislation that's, that's likely to pass or may pass. The White House may sign it. And we will have greater information sharing, uh, and there's some. There's so there's at least 75 votes in favor of it. I mean, the, the last the vote to, to bring it to the floor was 83 votes, mm -hmm. but um, there are a number of amendments that are coming up on Tuesday that could push people in other directions. Mm -hmm. um, and on one side, or nothing is done in Washington until it's done, right? So 90 percent chance it'll pass. Nothing is uh, nothing is uh, accomplished until it's actually done. Uh, this was the, that's the sounded smarter than Yogi Berra said. If it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, there and there are a lot of major tech companies in opposition. Well, that's that's where I was going to go. Is that the the, the tech community uh, has come out pretty strongly this week against the bill, uh, but they just had a big win with uh, the encryption debate. And I was wondering maybe right. we could pivot to that. Kibber, I don't know if you're passionate about encryption. If you uh, if the rest of the panel wants to talk about uh, encryption and. Uh, this idea of, of uh, having back doors that law enforcement uh, is able to uh, 
uh, uh, essentially use um, to kind of, uh, in cases of investigations, get into communications? So, <clears throat> you threw a lot there. But <laughs> we can start with the um, backdoor encryption for law enforcement. I think the administration has made the stance clear on that. So I would encourage you to look up the Arts Technia um, article on Obama's opposition now to um, just take a look at that. Uh, I, I'm a government worker. I'm a civil servant. So um, I stand behind my administration. Um, <clears throat> so take a look at that. But I think that, you know, that that stance that the, the government's taken now is pretty clear on that. Um, <clears throat> you may also want to look up the A130. Um, that's essentially a a document that lays out how encryption is handled um, for both uh, data at rest and data in transit. Um, OMB Circular A130. Just so yes, no, thank you. Um, <clears throat> so for our part at 18F... Um, You're encrypting everything. We're encrypting everything, and we are uh, adamantly, a few of us, going to the, to the White House and and arguing that everybody should encrypt everything. Grandma should be able to send an encrypted email, right, if she wants to. Um, so really until until that can happen, uh, there's a long way to go with encryption being available for the general public. We've got uh, the open source community has been huge, making huge strides toward making encryption easier for everyday Americans. Um, <clears throat> you may want to look at some things like Keybase, um, Proton Mail, um, browsers like Tor, which is, you know, doesn't make you a criminal if you use Tor or DuckDuckGo. Um, it just says that you want to kind of protect your privacy while you're browsing the web. Um, and Duck, again, DuckDuckGo is a search engine. It is. It's a search engine that doesn't um, doesn't track you. So in the same way that Tor, um, we won't get into the technicals of onion routing, but basically. Um, what we're talking about really is the the information that you're inputting into into sites, right? So that the the information collected by those sites, right? All the sites are collecting data. So you, um, I digress. So let's say you go and you Google like bat dresses, which is one of my frequent <laughs> things that I Google is bat dresses. Um, it's not a coincidence, right? That the next time I check my Gmail, I'm getting ads for bat dresses, right? Google's tracked me somewhere. Right, so you've got browsers like Tor, DuckDuckGo, that are handling that are, are not capturing metadata. So that's really what we're talking about when we talk about things like onion routing and and um, tracking history, tracking your input information to these search engines. Google's tracking you. Um, DuckDuckGo isn't. So <clears throat> your metadata um, is something that should really be protected information that you enter, things that you search, um, fields that you complete. Uh, I'm an adamant believer that that web browsers shouldn't be keeping that information because then that information makes you vulnerable and that information then creates yet another target for attackers, right? Just yeah. so, so, Kimber, what should grandma do? We said, uh, because this is actually something that we can all think about is Cybersecurity is not just the, hey, let's let our IT team put a bunch of great tools and protections, but it's actually about culture change and it's about uh, empowering people to kind of uh, do things safely. 
So whether you're in an organization, if you're a student of Kennedy School, or you're working at a company, or your grandma, like what should you, those aren't mutually exclusive by the way, but like what, you sh what should you be doing? Uh, clearly passwords that are password is probably not a good thing. Um, but like just, just for, the, for the beginners, like what, right. are, what are a couple things? Because this gets really complex and really scary and then you say, well, you know, forget it, it's too complicated. Sure, okay, so <clears throat> we'll do like a little 101 tutorial and I'm sure you'll be happy to jump in on that. Um, the first thing you want to do is kind of get rid of the mindset that you have to have a password, right? I'm going to preach about passphrases all day long. So if you've got an eight-character password, we'll just talk math for a minute, right? If you've got an eight-character password that you're using a special symbol and a number and, you know, a capital and a lower and you think, okay, I'm safe. Well, <clears throat> as a red teamer, uh, a person who um, gets to attack all of your websites for free which is super fun um, I can go to say your your organization's web page to create an account and right there on the page it's gonna say uh, passwords must contain XYZ okay now I'm limiting the scope of my attack right I know that you're only gonna use these five characters I know you've got an eight character limit like I can I'm just gonna go crazy and talk about rainbow tables let me just not but basically have a database of passwords right and I'm just gonna hit you hit you hit you hit you until I get it um, so that little eight character password you've thrown some symbols into it and you feel safe is not nearly as safe as if you just type out like grandma has a red car then exponentially we're talking about you know a 26 character password that you can remember that's gonna really make it a lot harder for attackers and they're gonna move on to the next thing. So like a song lyric or a sentence from a book that you like. Right. Use that as your standard and then you have like a standard way of deviating it for different sites. Right. That kind of thing. Something that you can remember easily. And if, if there are any programmers or developers in the room, um, that's a way that you can start right there with your code is to not limit these poor people to eight character passwords, 10 character <laughs> passwords. If well, they want to have. I, I'm going to push back on that, which is you shouldn't be using username and passwords if you're an engineer. Well. Right? We, we should be able to move beyond username and passwords um, at organizations. Um, there are a lot of different choices out there. I mean, you can use one time passwords if you want to stick to user, if you sure. feel like you need to stick to username passwords, but um, sure. you can do, you know, cards, you can do a whole range of different things aside from passwords. Well, and so any site that you use that offers two-factor authentication, yes. enable it now. Right, and right so, now. So what is, I ask you to put your mics a little closer. Oh, what, sorry. Uh, what is two-factor authentication? Do you, so that's, uh, you know, you go to your, your site and you enter your password. Okay, that's a thing that you know, right? The, the 2FA or two-factor authentication, um, that's going to be something that's given to you. So... I might hack Jen's password, but then the next thing it's going to give me is, okay, now enter your soft token, or uh, there's an app you can uh, download to your phone, Authenticator um, for Google. You can enable 2FA in your Gmail today, right? So basically when you go to log in, you're going to enter your password, and then it's going to send a code to your phone, so you'll have to have been in possession of your phone to be able to check and then enter that information. So let's say an attacker has physical control of your system. If they don't have your phone, like that's just another layer that you've added of protection for yourself. Um, does, you, does a fingerprint count? 
Yep. Yep. So sure. like when I when I log into Bank of America, I have to have my phone and my thumb. Right. So you can think of 2FA this way. It's a thing you know and then a thing you have or you've been given. You've been given. So that um, if you enter say your password so USAA is a, I like to pick on them sometimes. You, you enter in your username and password, right? But then on the next screen, it's okay, now enter your PIN. Well, that's not really 2FA, right? Because you know both of those things. It has to be enter the, the code that just came to your phone or enter the, the number on your little RSA token, right? It has to be a, a separate thing that's unique each time. Um, most everybody I know uses a password manager, like LastPass. Um, I, I don't know 90% of my passwords. I'll be honest with you, I have no idea. I have to reset my passwords all the time. Because I use a password manager, yeah. right? So if I happen to need to check Gmail on my phone and I forget that I've changed it in my password manager, like I have to reset it ag again. And things like, uh, and they're free. LastPass is free, right? It's great, a great tool. And it'll just auto-generate a random password for you, so. Just don't forget your password to your password manager. Yes, don't forget <laughs> that password. That's, and the, and the password to your password manager should be uh, like a 30 character. It, right. You know, it should be war and peace. Right. It shouldn't matter how long it is, because it just gets hashed to a static link anyway. So, Brent, you've effectively run a cabinet agency. You've, you've been in charge of public communications for two of them. Uh, there must be some interesting stories about uh, what people have done in government in terms of yeah, uh, well, user, be user behavior or like what do you what yeah. do you tell the I mean I, I think that unfortunately the stories in government are more what we haven't done right you know and again it goes back to budget cycles uh, procurement cycles it goes back to a lot of really archaic uninteresting things that keep us from being able to adopt a good idea tomorrow right um, so unfortunately I think we're somewhat behind the curve you know I have seen in my my seven years in the administration a move towards more um, especially a DOD use of cards, physical authentication. Thank you very much. Um, but, uh, but I think there is a, a greater um, reliance on these types of tools, um, kind of the simplest versions of these types of tools, right? And in a way, tools that make us less mobile, right? So we're much more tied to our desks. We depend a lot more on our, um, uh, you know, most people that work at DOD, you have two computers on your desk, you have a secure, um, you know, secret or top secret level uh, workstation uh, and a, a traditional government uh, workstation. We do a lot more stuff on the secret network than we probably did 10 years ago. That isn't really secret, right? It's just we know that it's a little bit safer uh, for folks. But, you know, the... Um, Does that fall more around it? Yeah. <laughs> Virtual bar <laughs> wire. So, uh, but I do think the CENTCOM, um, the hacking of their... Um, uh, Twitter account, uh, which really it just led to kind of cyber vandalism, right? Some uh, ISIL um, affiliated folks uh, got in there and basically changed the pictures and changed the content of the feed. It, it in no way, you know, compromised the security of any of our folks around the world, but it was incredibly embarrassing, right? And that was very simple. I mean, the contractor that managed the account and had you know, an easy to guess password. Because Twitter doesn't enable, sorry to pick on Twitter, yeah. but Twitter doesn't enable two-factor authentication for accounts that have multiple users. So a lot of companies or organizations have an official Twitter account, Rapid7 has a number of them. And in that situation, you have a team of people who all have access to the Twitter account, 
And in that situation, you cannot enable two-factor authentication. It's one of the things that Rapid7 is trying to deal with right now, is how do we do this? So please don't hack our Twitter account. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and, and so as a result, going back to what we said earlier, it's super easy to trick somebody into putting their credentials into a, a fake website, and then you've got the creds, and because there's no 2FA on there, there's no sort of fallback of like that, that thing that you have to go with the thing that you know. The, the right. other thing that I've learned is don't put pizza as your favorite food. <laughs> Some security systems use what's called knowledge-based authentication. And in fact, the, the, the IRS breach uh, that happened recently, uh, they had a knowledge-based authentication. Uh, they were using stolen credentials on the black market, so they'd actually bought a lot of the criminals had, had bought a lot of private identities, but then there was a uh, basically a challenge about knowledge-based authentication. Security questions security, are really stupid. Paris Hilton very famously hacked because her password was her dog's name, and she talked about her dog publicly <coughs> all the time. Yeah. So um, for those security questions, don't put the real answer. Like, what's your mother's you maiden name? Don't remember what your don't lie was. Put the real thing. Put something else. Like, my security questions are... Like, I know my security questions in general, and I know the answers are all, like different flavors of obscenities, but... So, 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 <laughs> uh, so I, I, I'm going to just throw a question out myself, because this is something that's always bothered me, um, and uh, what the hell, uh, I get to sit up here. So, um, you know, it's interesting, and there's a lot of reasons for this, historical or cultural, but for some reason, we are reticent as a society to apply the same types of standards to cyberspace that we are to in the physical space, right? So we decided as a people a long time ago that it was a really good idea for people to have to wear seatbelts. And we decided that for two reasons, right? Personal safety and common good decreases the stress on our uh, our emergency response infrastructure because there's less fatal accidents. Um, you know, people that are thrown from cars put other people in danger. Whereas we are we are very slow to say we should have a regulation that says you have to have certain levels of security. Um, but there's just as many real-world impacts to those dangers as there are to physical dangers. And so I would just say I, I, I think it's a shame, and I know it goes against kind of the traditional open nature of the Internet that we don't require more of individuals and companies when it comes to cyberspace. Uh, and a lot of these problems, even the information sharing solutions we're talking about are great, but we're almost creating workarounds to just telling companies, hey, you got to do some certain things here because it's good for you and it's good for the country. So I, and I think increasingly, though, uh, there, there's certainly the, the seatbelt question, but there's also the education question, right? And so increasingly, uh, uh, children are, are, are learning more fluency about the, the internet much faster. I mean, my, my twins are not yet three years old, but they can use an iPad, right? And so I haven't, we haven't quite had that conversation about passwords. Sorry, I just wanted to ask, can I ask a question? Yeah, go for it. So, show, show of hands, um, so how many people use two-factor authentication for a website other than your bank? All right. Nice, well That's done. Awesome. Um, how many people reuse passwords? They're how not going to admit how it. Often? <laughs> At some point, How yeah. many people reuse passwords that they use for a site that they would actually care if it got hacked? Yeah. Um, how many people use a password manager? The rest of you should go check them out, LastPass. Um, <laughs> it's not my company. Um, and how many people uh, have been fished? Like know that they've been fished, I should say. <laughs> I can tell you. Yeah. I'm uh, just going to say that what we see yeah. um, on the on the federal side, 
a huge uptick in phishing, um, successful phishing right. attacks or spear phishing attacks are during fantasy football season, right? Or, or um, the brackets for the right. basketball yes, uh, ACC, right? Yeah. We, because they, the CEOs will get like, oh, dear fantasy football, and they're like, yeah, and then they click. I mean, it's oh, we see a huge uptick during so, those times. So uh, the stats show that execs are the worst for falling for it because uh, the... Well, um, the easiest to trick, I mean. Well, well, and also, so like you have an exec who sits in a meeting and he looks at things on his phone, right? That's like a very standard thing. Again, I'm doing the heat thing. What is wrong with me? They. Um, they. They sit in meetings and they frequently look at email on their phone and are multitasking and will frequently take the action that they've been prompted to, like click on the link or whatever, on their phone. And when we do our internal phishing campaigns, because you know we like to trick our own employees, um, we find that the execs are, are typically always easy to, to get um, because they also have this like thing of like I'm an exec, I should be I should be responsive, I should be available. Right. I get I get an email, I should take it seriously, like this is my job. Well, and they, to be honest to talk about government, they also, you know, there are special opt out programs for required security training. It's I mean the number of high level folks that don't sit and do yeah. the required OPM or GSA training they have a, right. a, um, a, someone that works for them sit there and click the right answers or they get a special <laughs> tutorial because they're a certain rank. Uh, they also, they don't learn. Right? Well, so, well, they I, also, I oh, I'm sorry. No, I, was, I, was, I wanted, I'm going to change the subject. Can I just so ask one, one oh, mine was just the, um, that they also fall for these things because they expect that there's like a magical um, wizardry IT department yeah. that that catches all those phishing totally emails. Exists, right? Well, right, before they make, make it to their I inbox. I also tell you, I cannot speak close to the technical level that the other folks up here can, but as someone that has to deal with the public affairs consequences of decisions that uh, leaders should make. Also just, I mean, there's the basic rule, like, don't do dumb stuff on your work computer, right? Like, if these people... Ashley Madison. Yeah, if these people... <laughs> Ashley Madison is the perfect one. I mean, what, there was over 10,000 yeah. dot uh, mil or dot gov websites that were our uh, email addresses that were yeah. used for people to register for that site. So not only were they doing it from their computer, they were using their website or their email address, their official government email address. So again, there's this weird distinction people have in their heads between the cyber and the physical, and they would, you know, it's the same as using your government credit card at a strip club, which a lot of people also do, unfortunately. But, you know, I mean, if, if you decrease the chance of, um, of leaving yourself open to nefarious activity if you don't do dumb things with your official account. So, so let me, I want to take some questions now from the I, audience. I, I didn't want to just respond yeah. to what Brent said earlier about regulation. I, I, I want to make sure people understand that in the last six months, there's been a real sea change in liability for companies in this space, um, which, the, the, for example, the financial Financial regulators have redone all their guidance in this space, um, the and, and uh, made it much more clear uh, across all of the different independent regulators exactly what they're looking for, um, and which is going to increase liability. The FTC won a very big case against Wyndham Hotels, which said that um, Wyndham had been hacked three times successfully, and they didn't do anything to make changes. And um, rather than settling with the FTC, they brought it to court saying that the FTC didn't have clear guidance in this space, and Wyndham lost badly. So I think that says to companies, you actually have to go forward and do things to improve, even if you're not critical infrastructure. Um, and we've seen the energy companies now, the, 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 at least the electric regulators, move to the next stand, next version of their standards, the SIP standards as well. So and that's all within the last six months. So I do think you're seeing liability increase even without the, the direct legis re regulatory uh, legislation that we put forward in 20. All right, we're going to move to questions. I'm going to ask that people keep them brief and make them questions, not statements uh, in the back. 
Um, not as good, honestly. <laughs> I mean, some states really have done a better job stepping up. So Michigan and Virginia, in particular, have done a lot more uh, on cybersecurity uh, and giving providing cybersecurity resources within the government. Um, there are other government. Most other states are not quite at that same level of um, investing in cybersecurity internally. Um, there is a, a sharing organization, we're talking about information sharing, called the Multi-State uh, ISAC, which does do some sharing in the space um, and is growing. So there is there are some efforts to continually improve, uh, but it, it's not as mature at the state level at all. Yeah, big, big opportunity, small, right? small security teams. Yeah. And they have a lot more data than the federal government does, too, if you think about it. So and it's, it's scary. From what from the little bit that I've seen, it's, it's really about just protection, right? They have a different set of requirements and responsibilities of the federal government. So it really is just how do they protect their systems is really where their budget dollars are going. Actually, a really interesting side story, though, is that uh, certain states' national guards are starting to invest as building a capability around cyber. So national guards do lots of interesting things, but certain states like to become known for things, right, so that they can deploy and be part of. Uh, Martin O'Malley, who is from Maryland, uh, he started a program when he was uh, the governor of Maryland to try to make uh, the um, uh, Maryland National Guard is specialist in cyber. So that's kind of an interesting idea that some of that's happening at the state level. The gentleman right here. What's up? My yep. name is John Gibbs. I'm an MPA um, student here at Harvard Kennedy School. So we talked a lot about the um, kind of the defensive side as far as what we're doing to protect ourselves against um, cyber attacks. But what about the offensive side? Are we developing our capability to say for the old PM attack, for example, to go after those computers, maybe degrade and destroy them? And does that have a deterrent effect for future so where are we going to talk about it? Classified. <laughs> but I, I will say the one thing is that, like, when you're dealing with information, you can never put the genie back in the box. I mixed metaphors then. We'll <laughs> 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 just go with the genie lives in a box for the purpose of this. Right. No, um, no. Yeah. So, like, you know, if we if we, if we go <clears throat> after the 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 people who came after OPM, like, it's not going to undo the damage. They have that information. Once they have that information. Out there. I will say this that um, there is there is a, uh, um, a presidential directive, presidential directive twenty, uh, the existence of which is not classified, and thanks to Edward Snowden is available for, <laughs> online for people to see. Um, so you can see the steps that we would take if we were going to uh, take uh, active defensive measures in this space. It's sort of complicated. There's been a lot written about it. Um, but it's also defense. yeah. Well, I mean, it, it means in this case where OPM got hacked, right? So like something happened. Two said was not offensive, right. as opposed to we're going out there and hacking someone. You know, that's what. So, yeah. so that's, you must have gotten this question a lot because you're yeah. in the face of sure. And, and we can't look. We and I can give a slightly different answer now because I don't work for the government anymore. But um, it, we can't talk about specifics because of classification. But I would just say when you think about what our government does, we draw very clear lines that other governments do not. Right, so we do see a very distinct difference between espionage, warfare, commercial activity, whereas some of our adversaries in the world do not see that. And so that's part of what makes it hard to engage with other actors is because we're playing by a different set of rules. Um, but I will just tell you. Well, that China's now said that they do. So we play by understand that. rules. <laughs> and, uh, but but I would say that look, I mean, you know, uh, the one thing I learned working with the United States military is that 
you know, it is a it is a learning organization that looks at all the tools available to uh, accomplish the goals they may be asked to accomplish by the leadership of this country. So, you know, I, I think we're we're looking at the things we need to look at. I, th I think one other thing is that in terms of um, active defense, if you like, <laughs> um, of of sort of trying to do something to deter future action and also make a point of like addressing the, the action that was taken. There are things that we, um, that, that the US can do that are not necessarily about cyber attacks. So um, do you want to talk about the EO? Yeah, so we, yeah. we uh, you know, we, we put together an executive order uh, that would sanction um, individuals and organizations that were known to, that, that can be proven to have um, been part of uh, a cyber attack in some way. So. Um, that hasn't been used yet, but it certainly came up in the China discussion and certainly caught the Chinese's attention um, in in uh, engaging with us. So, so what's the example of the sanction, like freezing their bank account? Yeah, basically making so that they can't travel and they can't use bank accounts. We've been really successful in this administration. I mean, it's been written about a good amount, but I think that people that are interested in deterrence in this space should really look into the use of sanctions in this administration. Uh, we've gotten our allies to basically all do uh, this, to, to all use the sanctions and agree that they're going to use the sanctions at the same time. Um, it is very hard for someone to participate in the world economy. Um, and be sanctioned by the by the United States or by one of our allies. So if you look at North Korea, obviously that's a little harder because they don't participate in the world economy. So, but for other places, yeah, it's and I, I would just say, you know, don't think of cyber as walled off, right? It's just another place that we're now doing foreign policy and we're now having issues. So the same way that we responded to physical actions by Russia and Ukraine through. Um, uh, through economic sanctions, you could see a world where cyber activity led to other types of responses. We also, though, need to figure out cyber more because the worst case scenario is if it became a flashpoint because we didn't have it worked out, and then all of a sudden you saw physical escalations in other parts of the world, which could very easily happen. Okay, let's try and move a little faster through some questions here. Uh, my name is Miranda. I'm a graduate student at the Fletcher School. Um, we talked about information sharing for the private sector and also increasing state actors. So when you get the state actors hitting the private sector, what's the thought process on advising the private sector? How this is a really good question because there's a lot of thought that's gone into this over time. So um, DHS is set up basically to advise the private sector um, on if they have an incident that involves um, uh, the uh, involves nation states, et cetera, or if, if it if it impacts critical infrastructure, right? Um, the part where that really doesn't come into play is, I, for, which we didn't get into too much, but I think is important for people here to realize is there's a lot of these incidents where nation states are coming in and grabbing intellectual property and bringing it over that are not happening critical infrastructure, and there, there's not really that much advice that they get from the government at this point. I mean, they need to step up their game internally on their own, um, even though it's a nation state that's coming in, which is hard. Um, but uh, it's also... Uh, you know, uh, the, the, there's also this question of how much does the government know and when do they know it? And, and it's sort of gotten lost out there uh, in, the, in, the, in the discussion. We've had CEOs, when I was at NSC, we had CEOs come to us all the time and say, um, you guys are telling us after we get hit. We want to know before we get hit, uh, right, because they think that we are, have the intelligence uh, saying that what's going to happen. That's not the case. What we're seeing is the traffic going out of the country, right? And it, that's that's when you know that you've been hit. We don't see it coming in. So, um, and there's lots of reasons that that that, 
that they have that information. So we can inform people after they've been hit, but they can't really inform them before. It doesn't feel very fair if you're the CEO of a company and you have nation states attacking you, right? Like it just it, it, right. It's, so it's, it's this imbalance, and I, it and doesn't seem so fair maybe, at all. And then that's the reason make, make movies mocking the North Koreans, but like <laughs> right. That's <laughs> the reason we that's the reason we've in, we increased the sanctions, but it's also the reason we've done a lot more notifications, which is what I was going to get to. Which is like we we have so seen it as important that we are notifying directly um, and letting people know that they've been hit. Now that's not quite information sharing that gets you to stop things from happening, uh, which we're promoting as well. But at least, um, you, you know, people now know that afterwards and then we, we're giving that, them that information so they can respond really quickly. Okay. We had a question over here. Hi, Antonio Labrador. I'm a graduate from the Kennedy School. And uh, what do you think will be the consequences of the recent decision of the European Court of Justice to invalidate the safe harbor agreement? <laughs> Hey, can you give context? I'm probably the only person that can <laughs> yeah. answer that question, <laughs> sadly. Um, this is extremely complicated. So this goes back to 1990, well, 1989, when the... the seconds. <laughs> <laughs> the Europeans passed a directive uh, on, on data protection, right, that said that uh, if you have European data and um, you're within Europe, right, and you're passing it between, you have to follow a baseline standard. And that also worked for other countries as well. So um, the other countries had to be deemed adequate by the European Union in order to be able to use European data. What the United <coughs> States did was created a unique relationship with the EU where they uh, created what's called the safe harbor that said, we're going to follow these basic standards. Companies can individually sign up to follow these standards, and then they can uh, trade with the EU. Um, over the last 15 years, basically, um, that's been criticized by a lot of people, that process, that's, that, says standards, that the standards are too weak within Europe, uh, uh, um, I mean, too weak for the U.S., and that Europeans, the European countries don't think that they're strong enough. Um, but then, uh, post-NSA disclosures, um, there was a new line, a new tack that basically said, basically, any American company working in this space can't be trusted to follow these rules because they have to give information over to the government and therefore uh, they can't follow the safe harbor, the, the, they can't follow the directive so the safe harbor doesn't, which doesn't cover that stuff can't, does, is really invalid. Someone brought, uh, a student brought this to the courts basically and he won um, at the highest level. So now that that is invalidated um, and people don't know what's going to happen. People really don't know what's going to happen. I mean obviously there are, um, American companies are still going to use European data, European citizen data, and that and it's going to uh, um, Europeans are going to voluntarily give it to them, right? And they're not going to say, you know, don't give us your data. There there has to be some kind of process that comes out over the next year or so that figures out what the next step is to address these concerns. Um, it's so very the short answer is stay tuned. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we had a question right. But here. it's I mean. Eric Pizzi, I'm an MPA student here at Kennedy School, and so as a federal employee, the reason I trust Chase Bank more than I do DISA is because Chase gives me secure tools and they've proven that they know how to handle my sensitive information, right? Um, the reason someone like John Brennan might forward email from a work account to a personal account is because his work, his organization, has not given him the tools he feels he needs to get his daily job done. Is there any appreciation as the administration level or within the secretaries that the reason some of these vulnerabilities is arise is because federal employees or any employees are typically really going to want to get their job done 
And if they have to go outside of the organization and use COX tools or public services or Gmail to get it done. Or stand up their own email servers in their basement. Now that's not the right way and it's, and it's not the secure way, but that's in the absence of competent you know, IT executives or federal employees at places like this or elsewhere, in the absence of ATF, that's kind of the only tools they have. Yeah. I, look, I, two things. One, I, I want to, to stand up for our, our brothers in arms in the IT departments of the federal government. I mean, it's some of the best people I've worked with. And many times what's happening is their hands are tied by a set of rules. And, uh, um, you know, look, the reason that we still use Blackberries in the Department of Defense has nothing to do with the security of a Blackberry versus a smartphone. It has to do with a contract that was signed seven years ago, right? So uh, it's just that we work on a very different uh, rhythm than a lot of the private sector. But yeah, I think there is a recognition that this is a huge challenge. And I think, uh, you know, I, I give a lot of kudos to the administration for a lot of the work they've done, especially the last four years, to try to figure out how to, how to, how to crack that code, right? Like how to figure out how to make us more responsive. Um, that being said, the rules still exist for a reason. And I bet uh, uh, Mr. Brennan wishes he hadn't forwarded those emails, though, right? So it, it's, you know, sometimes it, it, it really can be a pain in the ass when you've got to go back to work to do something because you can't move information around the way you could in a private company. But unfortunately, that's the world we live in so, right now. So, Kimber, you have firsthand, I mean, you're, 18F is all about how do we constructively and safely break, break the rules and move faster and cut red tape so that we can deliver digital services for the American people while still protecting their data and, and, and having secure code and all that. So maybe you could speak to what are some of the ways that the 18F employees work? I mean, they're distributed, right? Right, so, <clears throat> well, at a, at a very high infrastructure level by uh, deciding to put our in, entire infrastructure out on um, AWS, right? So we, we saved about 80% of the budget that we had for our infrastructure. Um, so then that leaves us that 80% capacity to then invest in securing the infrastructure that we built in the cloud. So um, that model really only works if you take the savings and then you reinvest in security. So then that puts us, uh, you know, eons ahead of some of the other federal agencies that have their hands tied. And, and the same thing, contracts with Dell 10 years ago when they're still buying Dell servers and, and whatever. Um, <clears throat> so from an infrastructure level, certainly having the um, ability and the, the good fortune to be able to reinvest in security. Um, uh, another part of our model, though, is we don't treat uh, security as this separate siloed division, right? We just expanded our DevOps division so that as we're building things Can you as... explain DevOps? Okay, so... <laughs> Basically, well, quickly. <laughs> engineering and IT used to be different things. You used to build stuff, and right. then IT would kind of be responsible for infrastructure. And now we're, they've merged in a lot of software in the, in the tech industry. Is they, they're, they're pushing software every day or every week, et cetera, and uh, so they have to be more tightly aligned. Right. So, um, so we do have our, our devs, right, our developers, um, and we have our operations people who, who handle the aspects of our business operation, but we have a, a broad team, DevOps, um, that does things like the deployments, configuration management. We look at our IT infrastructure, we look at our security infrastructure, and, and again, we're very fortunate that we have the talent on our team to be able to build these things up um, together, right? So we can build 
security into our application because we have talented people who aren't we don't have to have one team build the app then it goes to another team to secure it we're working we're having these teams work in tandem so that we're treating IT and we're treating security and we're treating engineering and we're treating design even as sort of one entity that has to move us forward um, and that's really a best practice you see at 18F you see it at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau you also see it in, in private industry as well, where security and privacy are built into the uh, engineering teams. So you, it's not just a, a privacy lawyer at the end slaps a privacy policy on a particular product. You're actually thinking about how do we build this securely? How do we think about privacy protections as we are collecting information, or maybe we shouldn't collect that? We had a uh, question there in the back. So the question is about the Internet of Things. Yeah, how do we protect oh. ourselves? Yeah, so, so you I love IoT. You, yeah. uh, you go. So uh, um, the, the, there's been a lot of discussion about um, the supply chain and chain of trust in general in this space, and it's really hard to do in software in particular uh, because you can't touch and feel things and you, you don't know what components are in uh, are, are, are part of it. Um, but we have to get, be able to get to that point if we're going to make be successful in Internet of Things. I mean, the cars are one thing, but um, we're starting to see, uh, you know, the, the, I think the real uh, place where a lot of the discussion has, has started is on medical devices in particular, because the hacking there went back a little <laughs> further, uh, and hacking discussions went back a little further. Um, there, the Underwriters Labs actually ha is... is in the process of putting together a set of standards at that um, at ANSI at the American National Standards Institute to uh, look into medical devices and to look into um, control systems, as Brent was talking about earlier. So um, that will be helpful in moving us forward, but it's going to be a long process to get to the point. Meanwhile, you're getting a lot more things into this marketplace, so there's going to be a collision, a little bit of a collision. And was yeah, it Dick I, Cheney's uh, pacemaker, pacemaker that they wanted yeah. to disable, or they did disable? They the, did. They specially modified it so, so that it wasn't connected to the internet. Um, yeah, and and I would say like follow his 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 um, his example um, because in the short term, like to Ari's point. This is a huge problem, and it's not going to have an easy fix. It's going to take a lot of collaboration between um, makers and breakers, basically. We're, we're the breakers. Um, and we don't have really good models for that collaboration. The relationships don't currently exist. There's a lot of defensiveness on both sides and a lack of trust. So it's a really long journey that we had ahead of us. So what I would say is, in the meantime, if you don't need it connected to the internet, do not connect it to the internet. Right. And like generally speaking, I would say that's a pretty good principle for life. And just like, you know, we, we all sitting here are people who clearly like technology. Um, and the new shiny is very, very seductive. And um, I think that when it comes to certain things, like the really good question to ask is, Eh? Why would I connect that to the internet? Um, and my favorite example is digital locks. Why? Right. Why? 
Right. <laughs> because I can unlock my house from my phone. Really, so can I now. That's awesome. Brent, and then we want to get a couple last questions. This is just real quick, too. I also think there is a political leadership piece to this, and we are about to go through an election, and we are going to have a new president in the White House January 20th, 2017, no matter who America decides it is. And I give a lot of credit to the White House. They have they have really embraced these problems in a way that previous administrations did not. And there's gonna to have to be a political will at the very highest levels to continue these very hard conversations. And I, I hope whoever we elect is willing to do that. Okay, so we're gonna do two last ones. One here quickly and then, then there, and then we'll wrap up. That's a caveat. Data brokers complicated question. Um, I mean, you have the credit, Fair Credit Reporting Act, so it's not as though they're completely unregulated in this space. If they make decisions about um, uh, uh, education, about uh, about um, employment, about insurance, um, and a few other areas that could ne negatively impact you, they have to inform you. You have to have access, the ability to access it. Um, obviously, credit reports are the most obvious, but it goes beyond credit reports too. Um, those. Um, so, what if they get hacked? Free they better have a damn good sock. Well, this is this right. is actually how the the California law on uh, data breach became an, a, a national standard. Was that Choice Point got hacked, right? Which is now owned by uh, Reed Elsevier, um, and they um, when Choice Point was hacked. Uh, it became a national story, and then all these other states started passing uh, state da data breach laws. These data brokers have a tremendous amount of data about me, about you. They maybe do? Not you, but about everyone else. Uh, last question, then we have to wrap up here. So, pushing a little bit farther on who's responsible for defending what, um, we talked before about how you know companies are being attacked by state sponsors and wanting the government to help prevent that from happening, not just tell them stuff about it after it happened. It, it seems like it's different in the cyber world that we assign who defends what, you know, based on what they own, versus in the, the physical world, you know, DOD would try to stop the Chinese military from attacking any American. Well, this is, this is interesting because this is, I don't want to. But my question is, yeah, go ahead. Is, is the question that DOD can't defend everything, and so that's where we are, or they shouldn't? So actually, I mean, we've been spending a lot of, putting a lot of the money for cybersecurity into DOD, DHS, and FBI, right? Meanwhile, OPM has a mainframe that's from 1984, right? You, you, the, the, it just does not work the same way that if you invest in the people that protect us in the physical world, that it's going to protect us in the, in, um, in cyberspace, right? That's going to detect us on the internet. We need to be able to go and uh, invest in new technologies and new defenses and R&D in the space, right? That that helps civilian uh, networks to grow and to be protected. Um, just having DoD be secure and and go. It's not. I mean, they can they can deploy after something's been hit, right? That's the problem. That's exactly the problem. If we're going to strengthen and harden the networks, we need to invest in the infrastructure itself. Right. That so that's it's more about investing in the equivalent of roads and um, 
uh, fences and, and those kinds of things than investing in the people and, and weapons, right? So, yeah, two, oh. two like super quick things too, just to clarify. One is a uh, state actor does not, def does not definitionally mean active war or defense related, right? So for years, state actors, the Chinese uh, in the physical realm have tried for years to do commercial espionage. That's not a defense issue per se, that is a espionage and law enforcement issue. So there's lots of actors at the table on this, even in the physical world. Uh, and then just to make your question more complicated, uh, you know, we're also dealing oftentimes with multinational companies. So I know we're out of time, but you could do an entire session on you know, what responsibility does that federal government have to a Japanese-owned company that happens to have a basis in the United States that's attacked by a North Korean actor? You know what I mean? It's a, you start to really pull the string on this stuff, and it gets pretty complicated. Kimber, you have the, the last word here. Oh, uh, that's a lot of pressure, but I was <laughs> but just going to speak to it. It's a fascinating concept, right? Borders in cyberspace. Right. So um, <clears throat> the law hasn't really caught up with the tech, or the, you know, with the tech there. So, um, that said, there's there's a lot of work to do in that realm of, of this universe that we're talking about, and countries that wouldn't otherwise align. Um, it would it would be fantastic if we could at least find a way to align in the areas of security, um, breach data, breached company, breach companies. Um, obviously, in a way that doesn't. Um, it, um, I guess in, impose on the right of the people to maintain their privacy, but if we could find a way for countries to cooperate on this level, that's going to be the, we're going to have to do that. The law's not going to catch up for a long time, so countries are going to have to just find a way to, it may never catch up, to reconcile right? that. Right. Yeah. right. So I hope we've given you a, a little bit of a flavor of some of the, the challenges, the complexity, the, the growth. There's a lot of great resources at the Kennedy School and growing. Uh, Professor Waldo, the university CTO, uh, teaches a class. There, uh, I believe Jonathan Zittrain is affiliated with the Kennedy School. Uh, there's, in, there's a whole bunch of really uh, fantastic fellows and, and, and folks who have uh, operationally or in policy context lived this prior to coming to the Kennedy School. So this really is a, a fantastic uh, area for this kind of uh, uh, debate. And so thank you for, for all coming here. Thank you to the Chorenstein Center, uh, the Ash Center, and the Center for Public Leadership for, for hosting today. And if you please give me a, a hand for our panelists.